Everybody hear me okay? All right, well, good morning. I'm excited to preach this morning, as Jared said. Uh, preparing to preach God's Word is a weighty thing. Um, God's definitely done a work on my heart the past few weeks and just preparing. So all that to say, as much as I'm preaching to you this morning, um, I'm preaching to myself and have been uh, for the past few weeks. Uh, we're going to be in Galatians 5, but to begin with, I'd like to bring you back to high school. Um, for some of us, high school is a time we want to forget. Uh, for others, for the Uncle Ricos in the room, right? It was the best time of your life. Uh, regardless, I want to take you back to high school history class and remind you of a guy named Patrick Henry. Uh, Patrick Henry was an early American congressman who gave a speech in 1775, and at the end of his speech, he ended it with a phrase that you're probably familiar with. He said, give me liberty or give me death. Uh, he, along with many at that time, would have rather died than to live under the tyranny of England. And we know how that ended up, right? We um, won the Revolutionary War, and we're now American citizens, and not citizens of England. As Americans, we're familiar with freedom and liberty. These are concepts that we talk about very often. And if you watch the news, you hear debates about freedom, but they're woven into our culture. We celebrate the 4th of July every year. People flock to this country to experience freedom. Freedom is a powerful thing. And today, as I said, we're going to continue in our sermon series in Galatians, which has been called by some the Magna Carta of Christian Liberty. It's a book about the freedom we have in Christ, and Paul also has a message of freedom. However, this freedom that Paul's talking about is much larger than anything American, America can give you. It's freedom for your soul, freedom from the power of sin and death. It's the freedom found in Jesus Christ. And where Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death, Paul's message to us today is this. Receive freedom in Christ or earn death. Receive freedom in Christ or earn death. We know the message of the Bible and the truth about humanity apart from Christ is that we are slaves to sin. The Bible says uh, there's none righteous, no, not one. And the wages of sin, what we earn for our sin, is death. Hence, earn death. But God has made a way through Jesus Christ that we can live in freedom. So hence, receive freedom in Christ or earn death. The specific text for today's sermon is Galatians 5, uh, verses 1 through 15. If you don't have your own Bible, you can use one of the black Bibles around the room. It's page 915 and 916 in those. And we're going to read that. But before we do, I'd like to just quickly give you an uh, overview of where I'm going this morning. Uh, today we're going to be talking about two modes of living. One, uh, freedom in Christ. The other is slavery, the slavery of legalism. And we're going to talk about how both those have consequences not only for our relationship with God, but also for our relationship with each other here uh, at All of Life, for your relationship with your wife and your loved ones, for your relationship with those who you work with. So again, Galatians 5, verses 1 through 15. Paul begins by saying, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you settle our hearts this morning. I pray that this morning is not just a time where we talk about some some truths of Scripture and we agree mentally with these truths, but rather heart change happens. I pray that eyes are open to areas in our lives where we uh, harbor pride. And I pray that rather than trying to earn our own way and do it ourselves, we rest in what Christ has done. Teach us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we see in verse 1, Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, pens some of the most powerful words in Scripture regarding your salvation. He says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. For freedom Christ has set us free. In a real way, one of the, one of the results or goals of your salvation is your freedom. We could spend uh, the rest of the morning just on this truth, but I want to quickly just share with you, and I will have them up on the screen, some ways in which we're free. In Jesus Christ, we're free from the curse of the law. We're free from the curse of Adam. We're free from spiritual death. We're free from the fear of death itself. We're free from condemnation. We're free from the power of sin. We're free from the authority of Satan. And and again, these are things that we're free from, but we're also freed to things. We're freed to inherit all that Christ has purchased for us. In the prior weeks, we talked about how in Jesus Christ we're adopted sons and daughters, and and because of that, we're co-heirs with Christ. This is a massive truth. And it's interesting because if we were to go to a local coffee shop and maybe just uh, pull people, whether they be an agnostic who doesn't know what they believe, or an atheist who, who doesn't believe in God, or somebody who's even just casually familiar with Christianity, I would be willing to bet one of the last words they would use to describe Christianity is freedom. Most don't find Christianity and freedom as synonymous. Why is that? I believe that many out there, and maybe even some of us in this room today, have reduced Christianity to legalism, right? We've reduced it to a rigid list of do's and don'ts that we work our hardest to follow. All the while, God sits far off in heaven, angry most of the time, and just simply appeased when we happen to get it right. We've all heard people talk about religion or Christianity in this way, and the focus is on our performance, right? They say things like, well, I'm pretty good in comparison to somebody else. And this idea is that we're just trying to tip the scales in, in, in our favor. This, my friends, is the opposite of freedom. This is actually, according to Paul and according to the Bible, slavery. The gospel, on the other hand, is an anthem of freedom. I want to remind you of Jesus' words in Matthew 11 where he says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And what about Jesus' yoke? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Or how about in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people in Nazareth, and somebody hands him a scroll, and he opens it specifically to a chapter in Isaiah. He's fulfilling this, this verse. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. 
A couple verses later, Jesus says today, this scripture is fulfilled because Jesus is the great spiritual abolitionist. He's come to set captives free. I want you to know today that if you don't know Jesus or you're unsure of where you're at, your freedom and God's glory are not in opposition to one another. They're not. In fact, they're intricately intertwined. The Bible says that we're created in the image of God and that he, God, has set eternity in the hearts of man. And it's been said that your soul won't find rest until you find rest in God alone. So whatever you're chasing today, if Jesus isn't on the throne, you won't be satisfied. You're actually, according to scripture, a slave. A slave to your sin, a slave to your performance. John Piper says it like this. This will be on the screen behind me. He says, this is the will of God for you. Your freedom, uncompromising, unrelenting, indomitable freedom. For this Christ died, for this he rose, for this he sent his spirit. There is nothing he wills with more intensity under the glory of his own name than this, your freedom. So Paul's concern for the Galatians and our concern today should be this, is that this freedom we have in Jesus Christ is under attack. We see as we continue in verse 1, he says this, Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For those of you uh, new this morning, we've been trudging away at Galatians for about a month and a half, four chapters, and we've yet to receive an imperative from Paul. What I mean by that is he has not yet to say, Christian, do this. We've been talking rather for four chapters about what Jesus has done. We've been talking about the doctrine of justification what Christ has accomplished on the cross. And finally, in verse 5, or excuse me, chapter 5, verse 1, we get our first imperative, and it's this. Stand firm. Stand firm. How cool is that? The first thing that Paul tells us to do is rest in what Christ has already done. So what does this standing firm look like? This is uh, sometimes a hard concept, as, as it's really an attitude of the heart. How do we stand firm as Christians? I want to help you with uh, maybe an analogy. Um, I was fortunate to play baseball in college, and those of you who know anything about baseball know that it's a game of immense failure. And in college, unlike high school, especially high school in North Idaho where you play 20 games because of the snow, in college in Southern California, you play every day, 60 games during the college season, uh, 60-plus games during summer ball. So there's a lot of opportunity to fail. And as a baseball player, it's very tempting to begin doubting yourself and lacking confidence. And so what I would do often is watch slow motion videos of the best baseball players in the world swing a bat. And I would fix that image in my mind, and it would give me confidence as I um, walk to the plate. In a similar way, we as Christians, as we grow in Christ-likeness, as we become sanctified, need to fix our eyes on what Jesus has done. We need to fix our eyes on Christ's work. So what about this yoke of slavery that Paul is talking about? We've discussed in prior weeks in the context of Galatians, Paul, the author, is frustrated with a group of people called the Judaizers who'd come in and distorted the gospel. Mind you, they agreed with a lot of what was being said. They said, yes, you need to have faith, but you also need to just do this one thing. It's a small procedure. It's not going to take that long. You need to become circumcised. If you do that, then you will be declared right with God. This, according to the Paul and according to the rest of Scripture, is a direct attack on the gospel message, which is this, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works of the law. Why? So that no one can boast. For a moment, excuse me, for a moment I'd like to just sober our minds and, and point out the, the nuance of this attack. 
Um, mind you, a couple chapters before this, Peter, who'd spent a lot of time with Jesus, um, was deceived in this way, and Paul actually had to call him out. This affront to the gospel, this enemy to our freedom, is not uh, somebody who says, I don't believe in Jesus. This isn't somebody who says, I'm not a Christian. This is a very sneaky attack. It's a small degree shift from the truth of the gospel. It looks a lot like gospel truth. It looks a lot like gospel truth. And this, this is particularly near to my heart as I would classify myself as a recovering legalist. I came to know Jesus at a young age and believe the gospel, but I, get, I began to believe that my right standing with God or my value was derived based on what I did. Much like the Judaizers said, um, I have faith and I'm circumcised, therefore God sees me as right. I said things like this, I'm more disciplined than others, I work harder than others, I know, I know more facts about the Bible than others, and it was for these reasons that I thought that God loved me. Paul believes, and I believe, that there may be people in this room that are tempted to fall in a similar way. And I hope what we're understanding as we've been trudging through Galatians is that the gospel message is not just for saving you, Christian. It's for sustaining you. We never move past it. It's not the elementary doctrine of the faith, and we, we get the Ph.D. course later. It is the Ph.D. course. Okay, it's it. We never move past the gospel. That's why Paul's first imperative is to stand firm and rest in what Christ has already done. I pray that we're beginning to realize that as a Christian, everything we, should, we do should be informed by the gospel. Timothy Keller says it like this, For the legalist, religion operates on the principle of, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. Rather, the Christian, the, the person resting in what Jesus has done, says this, I'm accepted by God through the work of Jesus Christ, therefore I obey. See the difference? You see, this is what the Judaizers had gotten wrong. And operating in this way as a legalist heaps a yoke of slavery on your back and, as I said, has massive consequences. And, uh, again, the, the path forward today, I guess the, the outline is that we're going to talk about the consequences that this has on our relationship with God and also the relationship with others. So we'll jump in to verse 2, the first of three consequences that Paul talks about um, he says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you try to earn your way into right standing with God, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Why? Really what you're doing is you're looking at Jesus on the cross, nails in his hands and his feet, his, his side pierced after he's just drank down the full wrath of God, after he said, it is finished, and you're saying, hey, I, I understand, but that's not enough. That's not enough. I, I need to do more. When we think about it in that context, we realize how silly that is, right? Christ said it is finished, and it is finished. So, so rather, if you try to earn your way, Christ will be of no advantage to you. The second consequence we see in verse 3, and this is really where the yoke of slavery is heaped on our back. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. Those who choose to perform their way into right standing with God are now obligated to keep the entire law. I want to talk just for a minute about the nature of God. We serve a holy God who's righteous and just and perfect. In the Old Testament, when people would um, come into the presence of God, they would fall on their face just because of the, the, in awe. And being holy, God cannot be in relationship with anything that's not, right? That's the great dilemma of Scripture is that God is holy and we are not, hence the need for Jesus. But if you say, I'm going to earn my own way, you have to be perfect. You have to be perfect. 
And we all know, we talked in prior weeks about the, why the law was given. It was never given, the, the, the law, the, the requirements of the law were never given as a means to salvation. That, that was never the point. The law, rather, is like a diagnostic tool. It's like an MRI machine, right? You don't have a hurt knee and go get an MRI to be healed. You, you go to an MRI so it can tell you that you have issues, right? In a similar way, the law tells us we have issues, that we're sinners in need of a Savior. The last consequence that Paul talks about is found in verse 4, where he says this, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen from grace. You've fallen from grace. And this is Paul's knockout punch in a way as he is really painting a picture that if we live in this way as a legalist, the first consequence is that Christ is of no advantage to us. We're obligated to keep the entire law. And lastly, we've fallen from grace. And I want to redeem this phrase, fallen from grace, from culture, as culture gets this wrong. Often, when we hear this talked about in culture, this is the context. It's somebody who's walking morally and then slips up and they have fallen from grace, right? Rather, the, the, the picture painted in Scripture is much different. It's somebody who has said, I'm going to try to walk morally apart from Christ and do it on my own. A better way to say this might be we've rejected grace. We've rejected the free gift of God. Remember Paul's refrain is receive freedom in Christ, receive freedom in Christ, or earn death. So again, to summarize, the consequences that that living in this way has in the context of our relationship with God are that Christ is of no advantage to us. Uh, We're obligated to keep the whole law, and we've fallen from grace. And Paul has very strong words to say for these people as we continue in verse 7 through 12. He says this, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Very strong words from Paul. Very, very strong words. As, as in essence, he's saying, you want to talk about circumcision? I wish you guys would just go the whole way. Right? Uh, again, very strong words. So, so what do we do? What do we do if it's not based on our performance? How do we operate as Christians? He, he says in verse 5, For through the Spirit... By faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. This paints a picture for us, as Jared mentioned, of already not yet. We, like Paul, groan inwardly with creation. Christ has uh, given his Holy Spirit to us, but we're waiting for him to come and complete uh, the work and make all things new. And he continues in verse 6, saying, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything. This, this morning and for Paul is not a discussion on whether circumcision has any value because in Christ it counts for anything. What does count? Only faith working through love. Only faith working through love. And, and we're going to continue to talk about, again, how this looks in the context of our relationship with others. But before we do, I want to address a possible point of tension. It's found in verse 13, and Paul expected this. As we talk about the gospel and this message of freedom, this is a scandalous message. This is an offensive message, and it begins to make people uncomfortable. Why? Because we've seen people live in licentiousness. We've seen people use the grace of God in order to sin. Paul expected this too. He said, for you were called to freedom, brothers. This is verse 13. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. The Bible's stance 
is that if you use the freedom you have in Christ to live like the world, then you probably don't know Jesus. You probably don't know Jesus. I love how Martin Luther addresses this. He says, and this will be on the screen behind me. He says, as for us, we are obliged to preach the gospel, which offers to all men liberty from the law, sin, death, and God's wrath. We have no right to conceal or revoke this liberty proclaimed by the gospel. And so we cannot do anything with the swine who dive headlong into the filth of licentiousness. We do what we can. We diligently admonish them to love and to help their fellow man. If our admonitions bear no fruit, we leave them to God, who will in his own good time take care of these disrespecters of his goodness. In the meanwhile, we comfort ourselves with the thought that our labors are not lost upon the true believers. They appreciate this spiritual liberty and stand ready to serve others in love. And though their number is small, the satisfaction they give us far outweighs the discouragement which we receive at the hands of the large number of those who misuse this liberty. In essence, Martin Luther, along with Paul, admonish us to continue to preach and find rest in the freedom of Christ. And those who abuse it will have to give an account to God, right? But we will rest and continue to preach and proclaim this freedom. And as Paul moves into verses 13 through 15, we begin to see that this legalism not only has drastic consequences in our relationship with God, but it also has consequences in our relationship with others. On the one hand, we see the person tethered to the cross, operating out of freedom, and he's described in this way, a life that's marked by love and the way that we love each other. On the other hand, we see the person who's operating out of legalism. And what, what marks his life? We find it in verse 15. Biting, devouring, consuming one another. For a moment, I'd like to just uh, flip back to Luke 15. You don't have to turn there with me, but I want to remind you of a parable. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And I think uh, there's a character in this story that, that highlights perfectly what legalism looks like in the in community. Uh, it's, it's usually the, the character not highlighted in this story. But, but for those of you unfamiliar, this is a story of two sons. There's an older son and there's a younger son, and they're both living at their dad's house. And the younger son says to his dad, Dad, I want all my inheritance now. I'm going to go and, and party, basically. And so we get this picture of him going. He spends all his inheritance. He comes to the end of himself. And <clears throat> the Bible paints this picture of him living in pig pen and wishing to eat the food that the pigs eat. And he says to himself, even the servants in my father's house live better than this. And so this younger son finally comes to the end of himself and makes his way home. And while he's a long way off, and this is a sermon for another time, the father has compassion on him. He's pumped that his younger son's coming home. So he rounds up everybody. He's going to throw a party. He's going to get his younger son new clothes. They're going to get a goat. They're going to celebrate and have a feast. And all the while, the older son, the older son is who I used to be. The older son is the legalist. The older son is anybody in this room who's, who's living under the yoke of slavery of legalism. He's unwilling, the older son's unwilling to relate to his father as father. Rather, he relates to him like I used to relate to a god, like an employee to an employer or like a servant to his master. He says this to his father. Look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you've never given me a young goat that I might celebrate. We can see plainly what is on the young, older son's mind. It's his performance, right? It's his performance. He's unable to be happy about and rejoice with his younger brother coming home because he's too busy keeping score. My question today, this morning is, are you keeping score? How do you relate to God? Do you relate to him as Abba Father? Or do you relate to him as an employer? 
Some of us in this room may be blind to the way that we treat others because we've fixed our eyes on our own performance. We become legalistic and like the Pharisees. And a testament to the freedom we have in Christ is that we are a people and a community marked by radical love. This does not mean we don't stand for truth. It means rather that the truth of the gospel leads us to love. Faith working itself out through love. And today as we consider the freedom we have in Christ and and consider the call to love and to serve one another because of that freedom, there are some questions that I want to end our time with. And my hope is that you'd sit under these questions this week as they stir up thoughts in you. Maybe you talk to your wife or people that know you well and ask them to observe what your life looks like. The first is this. Is the gospel bringing you low or is the gospel bringing you high? Are you a person because of what God has done in your life who's filled with humility or are you filled with pride? Marshall Sagel, excuse me, in an article on Desiring God this week, uh, describes this perfectly. He says, Pride selfishly sets itself, its wisdom, its gifts, its experience, its potential, above everyone else. It focuses on its own strengths and minimizes its own weaknesses, while at the same time magnifying others' weaknesses and downplaying their strengths. And when it is confronted, pride tends to cave in on itself in self-consuming introspection and self-pity. Paul won't allow the pride to retreat into ourselves, though. He draws our eyes, instead, away from ourselves to the awe-inspiring grace God has given to others. True humility, listen to this, true humility does not quietly despise graces that are not its own, but loves them just as much and even more. You see, what's interesting about the legalist is we often highlight our own strengths, right? This is what I did. I highlighted my own strengths, and if, and if another person wasn't gifted in the same way, I'd look down on them, all the while ignoring my weaknesses. So again, my question to you this morning is, is the gospel bringing you low or is it bringing you high? The second question, who's the hero of your story? Who is the hero of your story, Jesus or you? Do you tell the story of what Jesus has done in your life like an American, an independent American who pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, right? This, this, this way of talking sounds like this. I was lost, but then I, you know, I figured out all the answers, and I've, I've started to change my life around, and now I'm doing all these things. I, 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 I. Or rather, is Jesus the hero? Does your story sound like this? I was a knucklehead who didn't have it figured out. I was drowning, and Jesus saved me, and he continues to save me. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians. He says, I worked harder than all of them. Right? We're going to work hard as we grow in Christ-likeness, but he continues to say, but not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Right? We're going to work hard, but it's all because of the Holy Spirit. So, so what does spiritual maturity look like? I pray that in 2020, we are a people that grow in our dependence on God. I pray that we're on our knees more in prayer. That's the mark of, of a mature Christian, not less. Don't believe the lies of culture that tells you that independence is the way to go. You can't do it on your own. We need Jesus. The last question is this. How is the gospel changing the way that you see and treat others? How is the gospel changing the way that you see and treat others? You see, this one for me was gutting because five or so years ago, if you would have asked me this, I would have said, I don't love the church. I don't love others. I was pretty ruthless towards others. And it was because I was operating out of legalism. 
How do you see and treat others? Are we a people at all of life who overlook offenses, bear each other's burdens, exercise patience with each other, or rather, are we quick to push away? I pray that we're a people here, that people look at the way that we love each other and say, who is this Jesus? Who is this King Jesus? Because they love in radical ways. So to conclude today, I believe Paul's message to us is this. As you, Christian, we're called to freedom. Now use your freedom to serve one another in love. And for those of you who don't yet know Jesus, freedom is the offer on the table. Life and life abundantly. Let's pray. Father, do a work in our hearts this morning. I pray that hearts of stone are turned into hearts of flesh. I pray that eyes are opened and that you have our way with us. As painful as it is to have sin revealed, I pray that you do it. Move in radical ways where we see truthfully the lie of the culture that tells us to live for ourselves, to pursue money, sex, drugs, whatever it is. I pray that we see those rightly. We see those as slavery. I pray that we also see self-righteousness and performance and legalism as slavery as well. And I pray that rather we stand firm in what you have done and live in that freedom. Be glorified, Father. In your name we pray. Amen.